everybody, welcome to the booketing. All right, oh shoot, I forgot how to do this. Um, Everybody, welcome to the booketing. Oh, wow, yeah, sorry, folks. I have done this shtick now hundreds of times, and I didn't do it right. I didn't say coming up next. That's so, right. yikes! I didn't either. I, you don't know what's coming up next. Well, I guess I'll just tell you what came, which is me and Brandon, and we're doing this is the first. This is a booketing first. We are going to review a book that just hit the stands. And that I haven't read, but it's by an author that we admire quite a bit. Just hit the stands. I'm acting like it's a, it's not a newspaper. It's not a newspaper or anything like that. We're reviewing the New York Times. We're reviewing the New York Times. No, uh, we are hitting, we are reviewing a book that just hit the bookstores, the bookstands. Yeah. And that book is Clara and the Sun. It is by Kazuo. Ishiguru and Brandon, you've read this book and you're going to give us your review. What do you think? I am. We're going to get a whole episode out of this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, buddy. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> means I have a lot of talking to do. Uh, well, well, I'll ask you deep questions and I don't know. We'll see where the conversation goes. Okay. Well, as every, well, maybe not everyone, but people who are uh, listeners of the booking know I'm very fond of Ishiguro. And would you say favorite living novelist? Yeah, since Dennis Johnson passed away, yes, definitely my favorite. We say Better Dennis than, Johnson's name now. Yeah, we can say Dennis Johnson's name. Better than Cormac McCarthy? Yeah, I think Cormac McCarthy, and we can talk a bit more about this, but I think Cormac McCarthy has better style. I think he's definitely the better stylist. Mm-hmm. So he might be the greatest like living writer if if all you care about is style. But if you also care about content and well-structured novels, <laughs> yes, and I think Ishiguro has him beat. As someone who builds a novel and gives it to you as the complete artifact, Ishiguro, I mean, who else would even be in the running right now? Anybody? No, he's the one that got me excited to work on my dissertation again. So, well, there you go. So, and have you read every Ishiguro? Have you read everything the man ever wrote at this point? Yeah, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Um, the only one, I, actually, I take that back. The only one I've never finished. And it's only because I had to give it back to the library, but I just actually bought a copy of it again. Bought a copy of it. So now I have it again. Mm-hmm. That's the proper way to say that. Right. Is when we were orphans. But, yep. I don't even think I... Is that a more recent one or a more long ago uh, one? It's kind of one of his more obscure ones, actually. Okay. I don't know so, anything about that one, honestly. Well, I mean, if you know most Ishiguro stories, you kind of know this one. It's about people who have a sort of misplaced identity and are mm. dealing with trying to figure out who they are in this postmodern world. You so, don't say. Yeah. That's one of the things that, so kind of the res, research question that I'm interested in with Ishiguro and other, so I'm kind of, I'm writing on the postmodernists. Mm-hmm. And what really interests me is the question of authorial intent 
Surprise, mm. surprise, I'm sure, for people who listen to the bookening. <laughs> yeah, the question that we've wrestled with for the last five yeah. years now. And, well, the bookening's helped me clarify my thoughts on a lot of this. So, Nathan, it'll be dedicated to you. All right. If it's ever finished. In <laughs> <laughs> um, a little postmodern drama itself, things just, you get COVID that comes up. And then my dissertation director announces, hey, guess what? I'm retiring. <laughs> so it just gets, yeah, but whatever. It's about your your subjective experience of the dissertation. It's not about the dissertation as that's right a thing in and of itself. That's right. But yeah, so the question of authorial intent, because you read an Ishiguro novel and the author is not really there. And mm-hmm. so I've really been struggling with how, like, how does he, because I, I believe in the presence of the author. But with right. Ishiguro, what's really interesting is he is actually there, but you have to take his works as a whole. Right. Because Ishiguro, and he even admitted this, a good friend of ours, Jody Killingsworth, pointed out uh, in the a Guardian article, a quote that came from that was that um, Ishiguro says he basically tells the same story over and over again, mm-hmm. which is true. Ishiguro does kind of tell the same story over and over again. Right. There's a way in which Clara and the son is just remains of the day and never let me go combined. Yeah. So he's just retelling the same story over and over again. And that's kind of what his interest is, is he has this one question that he's um, trying to resolve in that question, or not even trying to resolve, just trying to show how it affects our modern lives. And that's the question of, I guess an easy way to put it would be he, his, he's asking, who are we and how can you ever even know who you are? Mm-hmm. Um, it's the question of identity. And so if you think about, or sorry, artists of the floating world, Never Let Me Go, The Unconsoled, The Buried Giant, all these things, even his Nocturnes, which is this volume of short stories, are kind of all asking the same question. Right. You have this character who you th- they think at the beginning of the story, they have a firm grasp on reality and what reality is. And then by the end of the story, you are questioning that maybe more than they are. Right. I mean, that's definitely with the remains of the day. But he is dealing with this question of, can we know who we are? But it's not postmodern in the sense that he's trying to completely pull the rug out from any sort of truth or reality. Right. Um, He's not like a Beckett in that sense. He's not being absurdist. He's not being nonsensical in that way. Instead, he's more interested in the way that that leads to hypocrisy and grief and within his characters. Do you think he knows the answer or has the answer to the question? Do we can we know who we are? I don't think he does. I think that he would argue that being really sure of who you are, but also not asking the question can lead to hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, that's really the, that's really the what's at stake with remains of the day, right? Right. If there is an ethics in Ishiguro, it's a willingness to face those sorts of questions honestly. Right. Now, he doesn't have a Christian perspective on any of this. Right. But that's what actually makes Clara and the Sun so interesting. And so, if you trace each of his novels, the closest he comes to being absurdist would be The Unconsoled, but that's more because it's like a dream, and it kind of is supposed to be a dream of this guy trapped in this Kafka-esque world where he's supposed to give a concert. He's a pianist. He's supposed to give a concert, but he can never quite find the concert hall, and then he gets wrapped up into all this weirdness that occurs in the city surrounding that event, and it's very Kafka-esque in the sense that there's no resolution. There's really no attempt to explain anything you're just supposed to feel as unanchored as the person who's dealing with a situation. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with his other stories. So like an artist of the floating world, it's about this guy who, very similar to actually Remains of the Day, is wrapped up with Japan's past in a way that he 
So he's this artist and he's a wonderful artist, but he's also was a part of a tyrannical regime that was very, I mean, it was awful. So him trying to resolve his past with what he had done and who he also thought he was as being an artist and trying to resolve those things and revealing the hypocrisies and the inability of himself to come to terms with that. So then what Ishiguro is really good at is showing the ways that we make excuses for ourselves Mm -hmm. and the sort of shallowness that can lead to in our lives. But he doesn't do it in like a Mark Twain way where he's just cruel and making fun of everyone. Mm -hmm. I think Ishiguro actually does really have sympathy for these characters, even the hypocritical ones. And so um, there's so many places where what's the, what's the Butler's name in remains of the day. I can never remember. It's like Hastings or Hutchins or yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those Dannings or Hopkins. Yeah. It's it's Hopkins. (laughs) Stevens. Stevens. Yes, yes, yes. There's so many places where it borders on mockery of him, where what he's doing is so patently absurd when he's he's crouched outside the door because he's so scared to talk to Miss whatever her name is, Emma Thompson. Yeah, there's so many places where you can imagine it going into a vicious satire, but it really doesn't. At the end, you're just you're really sad for this guy. And it's yeah. it's it's really moving precisely because of Ishiguro's compassion towards this ridiculous character. And that's really, that is the case with a lot of his story. Like I said, pretty much all his stories actually never let me go has the same sort of overtone where Mm -hmm. these characters are caught up in this cruel reality and they are hypocritical in many ways. The, The answers they have, the ways they respond to this situation is not say the way a Michael Crichton character would respond to the situation. Right. <laughs> you know, right. in other words, we don't have like traditional heroes. He doesn't have that sort of arc or narrative. Mm-hmm. And I do think that his commitment to this particular style of story affects, it does affect the plot. It does affect what his stories do. Right. And you and you see that in Clara and the Sun as well, except that story goes in very strange places. It's a, it's, and we'll talk about it kind of trying to lay the background here for Ishiguro and then how Claire and the Sun relates to those themes. Mm -hmm. And he even says this in some of his interviews, you know, it was more, he wanted to provide this almost parable-like background so that he could look at the human relations interactions within this framework. And that's really what he's more interested in. And we Mm -hmm. talked a lot about that when we did Never Let Me Go. Sure. So I think the big question for Ishiguro is, given human interactions and given our modern situation, like what what does that say about us and what does it say about people who try to come to terms with these things and when they how how can they live ethically how can they live in a way that makes i mean you i don't want to say so what's the postmodern thing everybody wants to be what uh you're not unique not eccentric but authentic authentic yes i really don't think he's interested in authenticity mm-hmm. um because i'm not sure he believes that you can be really authentic Right. I think that he thinks that anyone who attempts to be authentic is really just as hypocritical as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what I'm trying to tease out here is I think that at the end, so this could lead to two different ways here. This could lead to the sort of absurdism of Beckett, or I guess it could lead to three ways because you have Ishiguro's response, or it could lead to despair. Mm -hmm. And his novels do verge very close sometimes on becoming full of despair. Right. And Never Let Me Go is very sad. I think what he ends up, and I'm not saying any of this is like good or that anybody should take this as a lesson that you 
leave home with mm-hmm. and try to be Ishigurian in your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But anyways, what I do think that he sees as the answer would be a sort of, like I said, Socratic answer, which would be admitting what you don't know, a sort, a sort of um, stoic humility mm-hmm. in the light of not being able to know who you are, not being able to really know anything truly, because any other attempt to say you do leads to hypocrisy. And it does lead to that sort of inconsistency. And it does lead to the fact that any attempt to come to terms in any other way in our reality does lead to sort of bitterness or despair or right. anger or any of those sorts of things. And you see that in all his characters, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's it, that does make him interesting because what, what always fascinates me about Ishiguro, and it, you see it in Claire and the Sun too, is he, like, he comes really, really close to seeing depravity mm-hmm. in the sense that all of our attempts to make sense of ourselves and to control ourselves in any of these things fail. Right. And there are there and it's interesting that his heroes end up either being clones or robots. Right. The ones that come closest. And Clara and the Sun, I think that with Clara with Clara, who is the heroine of this particular novel, I do think she of all his characters comes the closest mm-hmm. to having a honest way of living in the world in an Ishiguro world. And it's really strange because she's very religious. And we can talk more about that here in a minute. So I guess a good counterpoint to him would be uh, for people who are reading along with the book ending would be Rushdi. Mm-hmm. Because Rushdi, I don't get the sense with Salman Rushdi that he's ever really trying to offer us a morality outside of storytelling. Right. Right. That through art and through creativity, we can kind of reshape the world in a way that makes sense to us. And that kind of is the ultimate good for uh, Rushdie. And he's so that he tells all different kinds of stories. Right. But what's fascinating about Ishiguro is he does have this one central question. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, how, how would you put the question that he's asking? Or like the stories that he's telling? You've now read a few. What are we here for? Or who are we? Or <laughs> what is <Yeah>. real? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, it is, it is. It is that it is like I mean we've avoided saying the word existential for this for you know now 20 minutes of this podcast which I'm I'm proud of you for and proud of me for not jumping in and n- n- nailing it on there but I mean it is kind of a classic existentialism isn't it It is except the fact that I don't think that I don't think his solution is an existential solution in the sense in the classic sense in other words I don't think that he's offering us authenticity and creating yourself as the solution. No. Does that make sense? Right. That would be more um, rushy. Yeah. I don't think, I, see, I just don't think he sees that as a solution that, I don't, I'm not even sure he's interested in that because none of his characters really try. Right. There's sort of a, and like I said, this could lead to despair and there is definitely a sadness and a self-involvement that's pretty essential to Ishiguro except for the fact that, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say it's narcissistic because I don't think he is. Mm-hmm. I think we've heard people say he is, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean... What are, what are some of the criticisms we've heard of him before? That he's a navel gazer. I think somebody said, somebody, a friend of ours, mutual friend, tried to read, whatchamacallit, Never Let Me Go, and said they just couldn't stand all the self-referential navel, of the, of the character, not of Ishiguru, but, but just the... The narcissistic navel gazing, I think, was what. <laughs> yeah, they said. and 
And where that comes from is almost every single one of his novels is from the first person. Right. So you can't get, so when you're trying to deal with the first, and he, I think he doesn't, well, Barry Giant's not, but when you try to write a book from the first person, you're going to inevitably have a little bit of navel gazing. Because you yeah, but I think every, that would. Uh, James Elroy, the crime novelist said, the great thing about a first person novel, novel is that the intrinsic built-in interest that it has is this is the most important thing that ever happened to me. If someone's telling their own story, it's because it's the most interesting, important story that's worthy of being told. That's just that's that's part of the the drama and the suspense of any uh, first person narrative, and it's kind of built in. And so I don't actually see it as narcissistic. I see it as you know, narcissism is Holden Caulfield saying, "Here's my boring story that doesn't really." mean anything much and i feel the need to share it with you because i just don't care whether you're interested or not i'm a narcissist i think i'm important but these characters i I think there's a kind of humility actually that ishiguro has i think he's one of the i don't even know that i'd be able to defend this if you pushed back but ishiguro in his interviews feels like one of the least self-important authors maybe that we've read that's definitely true and that's one of the things that endeared him to me when we first did Ishiguro and then I really got into him a lot. And that's interesting because, I mean, I was saying that earlier that I think the ethics that come out of this is sort of a humility. In other words, okay, so you have Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther, right. you have Nietzsche, you have The Stranger, you really have Dostoevsky's characters. Mm-hmm. All those are the sort of consumed navel gazers and the sort of products that you would see come out of that. Yeah. Even Cotwell. No, not Kafka, actually. Kafka's a weirdo. But, um, <laughs> Kafka's more in the Beckett school of absurd as you know, he's just a nihilist at the end of the day. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. There, there you go. That's more, that's helpful. So when you compare those, if you put those sorts of characters and writers against Ishiguro and his creations, I do think you're right. I think that this is more, these, this is the most important story these people have to tell. And yes, there's despair, there's sadness throughout it, but I don't think that can be confused with just a sort of um, narcissistic self-obsession, right? No, I mean, if there's anything old school existential about it, I would say he finds the beauty in the tragedy, which is a very sort of, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't actually stand up against the grant the story of, I don't have an argument against the story of the Grand Inquisitor, but I can give you a kiss. I mean, there is a little bit of, of that with Stevens watching the lights go on as he realizes that he's wasted well, his life. Yes. And that is, so in the end, he has no real answers. Like, yeah, with, with Kathy, in, in the end, he can only, on. and where in your, where you're right is it is a sort of existential solution. I don't know if I, I would go so far as to say respect, but I guess I can understand outside of Christ why you would come to this answer. Well, what's nice that, about it. I think Rushdie is a really good counterpoint because with Rushdie, he's saying everything's absurd, nothing means anything, but you can actually create your own meaning. And I don't think Ishiguro actually thinks you can do that. He thinks no. he thinks I, you can't create your own meaning, and there is no meaning. And I mean, I'm painting broad more broadly than I should here, but but just to sort of paint a big picture of it, I think what he's saying is we can never quite capture that elusive meaning or purpose or authenticity. And so we just need to be humble and we can find the small beauties within the despair, but I can't defeat it. The closest he comes to philosophically would be Milhauser and Martin Dressler. Yeah. 
because that kind of has the same uh, philosophy at the end of the book, right? Yeah. Here he is trying to build an authentic self. And in the end, he has to just learn that the best you can do is live in the moment and take pleasure in the small things. Right. And I, yeah, I think you're right. I do think that's what Ishiguro, he, he comes to the conclusions in almost every single one of his stories that yes, there is a lot of despair in life. There is a lot of horrible things that happen. There are a lot of sadness, but that doesn't excuse you to just be hypocritical, to lie to yourself. But also, I think that he would see someone trying to be authentic in the sense of an existentialist as being someone who was, in a sense, lying to themselves because, I mean, they think they've got it figured out. But really, well, and that's where the, is... the pride of, say, Rushdie's public persona, when contrasted with Ishiguro's public persona and the way that their books are written, is evident because Rushdie really feels like you can figure it out. And I, Salman Rushdie, have figured it out. It out. I figured out how absurd it is, but then I figured out how to make my own meaning within that absurdis- absurdism. And uh, which is, what's his face? Ishiguro is just saying, eh, you can't really though. And so mm-hmm. let's, let's find the beauty in it. Let's find the meaning that we can, but let's not pretend like we can actually get there. And I think, yes, I agree with you. I think it's ultimately a wicked and self-defeating philosophy, but I respect Ishiguro the most. A non-Christian who says, outside of Christ, I can figure it out any number of ways, I don't have nearly as much respect for as a non-Christian outside of Christ who says, I really can't figure this out. It actually doesn't make sense. I'm looking over here. I kind of want to go grab the buried giant real fast. Grab it. Brandon's grabbing the buried giant. You may ask, why, oh, why not? Why shouldn't Brandon grab the buried giant? Right. He's grabbing it right now. Right here. No, that was just a rabbit trail. Not worth going down. <laughs> Sometimes you set out to find meaning in you don't. Shiguru's corpus, and you look at the end of the buried giant, and there's nothing there. Yep, it's meaningless. that's right. It is meaningless. Life is meaningless, Nathan. Life is meaningless, but it's beautiful, Brandon. But it's beautiful in the agony of its meaninglessness. In the agony. Well, the other thing that Ishiguro doesn't do that so many of these guys do, and I respect him for it a lot, is unlike Dostoevsky, unlike Rushdie, unlike just about any of these guys that we've already name dropped, he doesn't actually make you wallow in the despair in a perverse or pornographic way you know yeah. i mean remains of the day is arguably about the holocaust and about nazi you know it's about those sorts of things but you never have to live in a concentration camp or look at the atrocities same thing for never let me go we're living in this horrific uh, society but he's actually more than willing to draw a modesty panel around it for the for the for the for the length of the book and it, it doesn't make it any less despairing or horrible, but it does let there be a modesty panel. And I really appreciate that because there's so few authors that do this kind of work that are willing to work through su- subtlety and implication instead of just bashing you over the head Dostoevsky style with how terrible everything is. So should we talk about Clara and the New Sun? Yeah, Cla- Clara and the Sun. Uh, so Clara and the Sun, I mean... For those who, so the, the way that Ishiguro works is that if you really like Ishiguro, you're going to really like most of his books because, like I said, he tells the same story over and over again. Mm-hmm. And Clara and the Sun is kind of a retelling of Remains of the Day 
in a sci-fi setting. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the novel is that sometime in the future in an America that he kind of says is America kind of doesn't, except a couple places where you know where they're going, which he, he does that a lot. He gives you kind of ambiguous settings. Right. People have begun to do genetic improvements on their children so that their children can have better advances, uh, better opportunities in the world. And these are called the lifted children. Mm-hmm. And then there are the unlifted children whose parents decided not to do this for them. And it's obvious that society is beginning to lean towards the lifted children. In fact, fewer and fewer colleges are allowing the lift, non-lifted children into their colleges. And so they're going to be kind of the cultural elite that lead the world, which is interesting. I do think it's kind of a comment he's making on liberal the liberal tendencies in education, where there definitely is, even with Marxism, there is an, an assumption that the intelligentsia will rule and that the intelligentsia will be superior right. in their intelligence, thus in the intelligentsia. Because of this situation, people are becoming more isolated and they have to be more careful who they are around. There are some hints and suggestions that uh, politics aren't going so well and that society's beginning to crumble just with some anarchic societies that are forming on the fringes. But in Ishiguro style, he more paints the picture for you, but he doesn't like just give you the history ever. Mm-hmm. And he does that with Never Let Me Go too. He never just stops and says, this is the world we were in, right? Right. Which actually I appreciate about him. It, it allows him to not run into the inconsistencies of trying to build a world and worry about all the f- uh, little details that he needs to be concerned about. It's also just good suggest. world building, I think, when I think it someone works starts him. by yeah. saying, "It's here's how it is and here's all the different pieces. It's like nobody actually experiences life that way. And so even yeah. not with a big splashy sci-fi story of, of you know, a more explicitly sci-fi fi story, I, I appreciate it when they give you things gradually because it just makes you feel like you're living in the world. Yep. And you learn, learn things by implication. That, that's how you actually learn things. So That's the world. And within this world, since everybody's so isolated, these lifted children, and they usually come from wealthier families, obviously, Mm-hmm. Uh, need playmates. And so there are two solutions. One, they'll have these weird little meetings where the all the other lifted children around will be invited to come and hang out for like an evening while all the parents will let them like talk in the living room and all the parents just kind of observe from the sidelines because they don't want to interfere with their child's development. All these parents are just terrified of their children not fitting in in the society. Right. Again, being a comment, I think on, I think the obvious implications with America are pretty uh, are there or these what is it the helicopter parents absolutely yes but also just everyone's concern about like which school is your kid going to go to and is it going to give them the best opportunities and all this and like the one kid who actually seems like a decent kid in this book is the one that's not lifted right um even clara's owner josie who is lifted has some issues that you know now, the other big thing with the lifted children is that it's implied that it doesn't always go well and that these parents make this choice knowing that it might eventually kill their child. And so that's a significant part of this novel. And so Clara is what's called an AF. I don't even think it ever actually says. I assumed it means automated friend. So automated friend. And so here Clara is, and the novel opens up with Clara's perspective of being in a shop and being waiting to be purchased and taken mm-hmm. home so that she can be a part of this society, this, uh, this household. There are new upgrades that have been made to the model that are also then introduced into this shop while she's, and it's like a, 
it's like an uh what do you call it an iphone store yeah an apple mm-hmm. store it's like an apple store is what it seems like and so the story picks up there and it's really you i feel that he must have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to present the world from the consciousness of an ai hmm. it's really interesting the, some of the solutions he comes up with and not all of it's perfect some of it's weird but you can definitely tell that he was trying to deal with like what would consciousness look like for something like this and so the whole story is told from the perspective of the af which is clara and eventually she's purchased and she's taken in by this family should we do spoilers let's do this let's uh give a couple more thoughts for people who don't want spoilers like uh, just some generic like did you like the book should they read it kind of stuff and then we can talk spoilers so uh did you like it and should they read it and where would you rank it in ishiguro's canon i did like it and i do think people should read it and i think it's right up there with some of his best Oh really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, it was it was good. It was really good. There is some weirdness. It's going to have like the with the never let me go. There's some weirdness, and this is where the fact that he's not like the world's greatest. He is a really good stylist. I don't want to get that get that wrong. Mm-hmm. But I do think that he allows some awkwardness and some just clunkiness to come through in his writing. Sometimes you'll find that a bit with Claire and the Sun. I think it was there and never let me go too. Yeah. Like I, you know what I mean. Yeah. Not every page feels like it's the the sort of pristine beauty that you get in James Joyce or something. Yeah. I mean, you could, he always has plausible deniability because you don't know whether that's the character being awkward in the way that they're, you you don't know how much intentionality there is in that, which is one of the neat tricks that he pulls. Yeah, that is true. And with Claire and the Sun, you get that too, because it's from, it's almost a bit like a bleak house with Edith or Esther, I mean, Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, he gets away with, a lot of sort of cheesiness because it's through the perspective of an AI. The story then revolves around Clara going into this household, becoming a part of this house and the drama and tension that surrounds her attempting to uh, fill this role of the friend to the little girl because that's their purpose is to be a friend and a, in a, a confidant like that. So in that sense, you know, you can see the Stevens parallel Mm -hmm. because here she is, trying to make sure that she's fulfilling this role, but then also struggling with whether or not she should do more than her role in order to help the family. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think this will spoil anything. That sickness, the genetic sickness, it does come into play in the novel because Josie gets very sick. Mm-hmm. And so then Clara feels that she has to try and find a way to help. And the solution is really interesting. And this is where the title of the novel comes in because Clara and at first I was thinking that Ishiguro was going to be trying to make fun of Clara or, and this is actually, I think this is good, a good way to kind of pinpoint exactly what Ishiguro does mm. and where he does have a sort of humility and a sort of, he doesn't like to come to conclusions about anything. Right. <laughs> because Clara is very simple. And so all the AIs are solar fed, like they get their energy from being in the sun. Right. And so this leads to a sort of primitive religion where they worship the sun <laughs> and they think that the sun must. And so there are these scenes early on where it looks like the sun has also helped people. It brought two lovers back to, or it brought a, not a lovers, but a, like a, it's the implication is like a estranged father and daughter back together. Right. She thinks it helps revive this beggar who just died on the street. And so she just sees the sun as being this life giving force. And so there's a barn near the house where Josie lives. It looks like the sun sets there every night. 
And so Josie, so Clara gets the idea that that's where she could go and talk to the son and plead with him hmm. for Josie's sake. And so she does. And then the novel kind of goes from there with all the weirdness that surrounds what she thinks she needs to do and stuff like that. So you get into the novel and then you're really worried, oh boy, you know, this is just going to turn into a pessimistic uh, awakening for Clara, showing her that, you know, there is no God. Mm-hmm. Or it's going to be a tongue-in-cheek kind of pat on the head. Oh, isn't she cute? And there is no God, you know. Mm -hmm. But what Ishiguro ends up doing is kind of unexpected. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising because it's Ishiguro, but he really, he does leave some ambiguity there. And he definitely does never once make you feel like Claire is an idiot or belittling her for this sort Mm -hmm. of stance, which was fascinating because... um, I think in the hands of any other, I mean, you put it in the hands of Beckett, you put it in the hands of James Joyce, any other sort of who, postmodern writer mm-hmm. or even modernist writer, and they would have taken the opportunity to at least made very clear that they don't believe that the sun is a god. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the novel becomes, it is uh, asking questions about faith and questions about, that I don't think he's ever asked in any of the, his other books. Hmm. Um, I can't remember there really being religion at the root of any of his other stories. Can you? No. And so, yeah. So this book really does become with him grappling with that question. And the fact that the one person who does have faith, A, she's not human, yet B, becomes one of his probably least hypocritical heroines of any of his novels. It's really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And the fact that he doesn't pull the rug out from under her, he doesn't make her lose her faith. I, I guess this might be spoiling a little bit here. It's uh, it is interesting. Hmm. So, wow, that's a that's a good teaser for uh, reading it. <laughs> yeah, people, and so I think that this really. So if we th- if you think about Ishiguro as being the kind of author who's like who asks these sorts of questions, and that's what he does is he wants to ask the big question about like who are we. And how can we come to terms with that in a way that, is there any such thing as honesty? Like, I don't think he has answers to any of this, right? Right. Is there any such thing as authenticity? Is there any such thing as honesty? Is there any such thing as truth? And I get the sense that he wants to think there is, but he doesn't mm-hmm. know. And so I think that Clara and the Sun is a really interesting addition in his work because with that novel, he actually says, now it's a cheap way in the end to get around it because basically all he's saying is if you want to have faith that's great right you know <laughs> but the fact that <laughs> it's just really fascinating that clara is the one that he chooses to do this through he not only leaves the question unresolved but he actually makes her into a really strong and decent heroine hmm. so hmm. Uh, may- maybe we'll just have to do it next year to yeah i'd be interested to hear what you guys have to say about it and some of the stuff he does with his images of the sun and Clara is really sweet and beautiful. There's a scene where she goes into the barn to plead with the sun. That's some of the best writing he's ever done. Yeah, it's just, it's good stuff. And her development as a character is really interesting to watch. Yeah, it's good. I don't know what else I can really say without getting into too many spoilers. So, Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great teaser. Because I think what I was expecting just when I saw the title and heard the conceit was that this would basically just be Never Let Me Go part, you know, the the remix, and it wouldn't go anywhere particularly new for him, and it would probably be quite moving and all that sort of thing because he's the master. Yeah, but. 
It is quite moving, and it really does. I mean, I think that what he's been good at is even though he is playing of the same theme, he does he's good at adding his variations to it. Mm-hmm. The Buried Giant, which I do think is one of his weakest books, is all about history and the way we tell history to ourselves and the way that nations come to terms with trauma that's in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that's an element. I kept for, I kept really thinking there was something we forgot about Ishiguro. There usually is something traumatic that's happened in the mm-hmm. past too, that everything's yeah. kind of revolving around, right? Everything's, and there is definitely that in this book as well. There's this traumatic thing, and there's also this traumatic thing that's happening that everyone's either attempting to deal with or forget, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I do think that's one way that Ishiguro is also very interesting is that he is willing to say that a good part of human life is trying to forget trauma that they've either caused or seen happen, mm-hmm. you know, and excuse ourselves for it. And I don't think he's, I don't think he just, he's a little bit like Flannery O'Connor in the sense that he's a equal opportunity critic. Mm-hmm. Everybody falls, nobody really stands in his world. So here you have, I mean, these are not definitely, you imagine that all the schools these kids are going to, they have Bernie Sanders flags and stuff like that up, you know, mm-hmm. or yeah. bumper stickers, not flags, whatever. But because they're all wanting the best of the best and that's, they don't have the feel of being conservative, you know, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? They're like the liberal rich. So, um, I don't know what other way to put it other than that's just the impression it gives, but still, Hmm. but yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend this book. Um, it's about 14 and 15 year olds. And so there's a little bit of, I mean, Ishiguro is never explicit with anything, mm-hmm. but there's a little bit of suggestion. Sure. So, but well, I'm not reading it. Yeah. And you shouldn't read it then. I try to stay away from suggestion of any kind. Yeah. Huh. I'm just trying to think. You just got me thinking about, is there any author that we've read or even just that's in the popular discourse that exists as thoroughly in the sort of liminal space in between pain and catharsis and all these like like he he it's like his books are books without climaxes if 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 you know what i mean like there's yeah i know what you mean the the important things happen before the book and and after the book but you're living in that in-between space yep um you you, you're talking about trauma saying there's always big trauma made me think about this you know the books are never they're all about the trauma but they're about living in the aftermath of the trauma or coming to some kinds of terms with the trauma. They're not actually what any other author would be about, which is the trauma itself or the big climactic dealing with the trauma. I just don't even know who we would compare him to besides some of those. I mean, the, those existentialists, but that's just, that's a clunky comparison. Yeah. Maybe Matt McCarthy kind of maybe with Rip the road and some of his later right. stuff. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, that Cormac McCarthy, allows his readers to have the release that violence provides even in the road you're going to deal with the cannibals you're going to i mean you're living in that 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 headspace of a thing that's never going to get re- resolved in something like the road but you as the reader actually get a lot of resolution when you mm-hmm. get these horrific moments I, I i really think the violence in cormac mccarthy makes a big difference um, no, I, think I don't even right. yeah i i don't know if i'm articulating that uh, correctly, because I, I don't mean it makes a moral difference. It does, of course, but that's not what I'm talking about. I just mean, in terms of what it gives you as a reader, it provides rhythm and release. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can talk about it, it that it, way, 
It's its own form of catharsis. Precisely. Ishiguro is not really in the business of providing that kind of catharsis. Maybe you come to one sort of cathartic emotion by the end, by the very end, but but you don't get a lot of these moments. Um, no, and I, I, I think he does that intentionally. And actually, the ending of this novel is sort of sad and resolutionless, like you would expect it to be from mm-hmm. Ishiguro. And not, but... This is a weird one because it's not sad in the sense that there's a hopelessness to it. Right. So it's only sad in the sense that what you what what he's allowing to happen to the character, you don't really particularly you feel is inevitable. So as I was reading the novel Like Thanos. Um, yeah, that's right. Thanos. Hi Jake. Jake's Jake's not here, by the way, folks, but he's joining us at the very end. So Oh, my bad. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm glad you you're you're just in time for donor shout outs, Jake. Oh man, Yeehaw. Jake. Just in time. Just in uh, time. Brandon was just uh, telling us about Clara and the sun. So yeah, I kept I trying to, to guess how this novel was going to end. And like I said, he kind of, he beats your expectations and he doesn't end it in either the despairing way that he could have ended it, ended it. He doesn't end it in the sort of tongue in cheek way that he could have ended it. He completely commits to Clara and commits to being convinced she's a good protagonist. And if she's a good protagonist, then therefore her beliefs can't, you can't belittle them at the end. So it's a really, really weird and unexpected place that he ends up. So, hmm. so I'm just going to tell Jake the thing, the most intriguing thing that Brandon, Brandon said two things that are, make me think eventually we have to do this novel. So you and I will have an excuse to read it. Mm-hmm. And thing number one is that it's one of Ishiguro's best, which in and of itself is a pretty good hook. That's yeah. Um, it's not, you know, it's it's it more belongs on the shelf with remains of the day or never let me go than it does with the the buried giant or, you know, that some of that garbage. The number two though, he said this novel in its Ishigurian way is asking questions about faith. Huh. Which is really interesting. And yeah. neither mocking nor buying into it in a cheap way, which you wouldn't expect of Ishiguro, of course. Right. But yeah, so I think that's yeah, kind of exciting so. and fun. Fits into his oeuvre because none of his other novels have really done that. The Buried Giant a little bit, but it was more about, like I said, national trauma and trying to, the way that nations lie to ourselves. I mean, he was definitely trying to fit into a moment there, I'm sure, with 9-11 and all that. So, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of moments. Ah, that's kind what? of unfair. I'm not sure that Ishiguro really cares to fit into moments, right? He's just more interested in the way that these questions... I, I think uh, if I had to guess, he likes to not fit into moments because fitting into moments and I, I think he got he got pegged as the Japanese guy early on in his career. And he's tried to work pretty hard to avoid being the, the guy Japanese that comments guy. on things that we deal with every day. Yep. Ever since he wants to he wants to be universal. I think you're, I think that's right. Yep. All right. Well, I'll tell you what else is right. It's right that we call out our patrons. So. All right. You know what? You guys just say Dracula and Frankenstein. That's all I can ever get you to do anyway. So just do it. And I will say our patrons until until we get to our new patrons. We have some we have to get to usher some into the pantheon today, fellas. Two new cool. ones. All right. Sounds good. Here yep. we go. Uh, Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Nike. The art philanthropy oh, dodger. Sweet Reebok. <laughs> Was it because he little said, just do it? Yeah. Little, yeah little sweet, we're on the same store. wavelength here. Reebok. Nike. 
the immortal Chelsea E. Nike. Reebok. Come on. Jimmy Beam and Lenny Oakley. Reebok. Reebok. N- Nike. <laughs> I fully expected Adidas, but you know, it's okay. You can go Reebok if you want. You're from I, the I'll 80s. Go to win. I'll do the uh, one everybody expected me to say. Go ahead. New Balance. That's actually what I was going to say. New Balance. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Puma. Puma. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Doc Nike. Martens. Lily of the Valley. Nike. I'm just going with Nike. Uh, Chucks. Andrew Nestor, the Lovebirds. Yeah. Nike. The Keith Master. Asics. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Nike. Reebok. John and Jill and Little <laughs> Baby Max. Sacconi. No, Nike. Uh, oh, yeah. Sacconi. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also see us lose goody to way of faces. Nike. Mm, yeah, probably Nike. <laughs> Airwalks. <laughs> of wonder and happiness, Mother Beth. Nike. Reebok. Uh, Console Prime, Adam, Jeremy, the Dark Hood, Lord of Death, Nathan, not me, Maya! Nike. Ryan, the Red Avenger, and Judith, the Ladies of Justice, TJ, Sammy, Danny, 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 Lavender's Green, Dylan, Dylan, Lavender's Blue, Lavender's Green, Dylan, Dylan, I love you too. No construction, Mary, Chief, Graham, Fragrant, and Chloe, Anthony, Nike, Rachel. Nike. Return of the Jedediah, Jimmy Nike. 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 John the Cosmic Nike. Matthew Nike. the Mind Flayer. Nike. Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. Nike. Flight of the Valerie. Nike. Thor Ragnajosh. Nike. Adidas. And we have to welcome to the patron family. We have Stephen. Stephen dot dot dot. Stephen dot dot dot. <laughs> oh, we're making it up right now. I thought I was waiting for you to. <laughs> no, 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 I don't. I, I got nothing. Uh, Stephen dot dot dot. That would be Stephen S with uh, Morse code. So, <laughs> so we could just say dot 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 dash 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 dot dot dot. There we go. Dot dot dot. SOS. Stands for Sound of Sanity. As, oh, so save our ship. Sound of it's three dots, so, three dashes, three dots, right? <laughs> what 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 are we actually going with? He's Stephen dot 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 Samuel Morse. It's Morse Samuel code. Morse. Samuel. Yeah, Steve, Sam. That's oh no, he's Steve. Good. Sorry, Steve St- St- Stephen Morse. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing, man. I'm sorry. I was just waiting. I thought you had something awesome. I, I, I'm going to call him Stephen dot 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 for now <laughs> because that's awesome, and and we'll see if. We want to change it, but you know we got to kind of try these on. It's like a, it's like a new pair of shoes. You got to try it on. Uh, new so pair of Nikes. That's right. New Balance. Welcome to Stephen, and welcome also to Peg. Peg Peggy Carter. Hey, Square Peg. Peg. We're not going to call her Square Peg. She's she probably had to put up with that her whole life. How about Peglodon? Peg. Sure. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. This is a giant prehistoric man-eating shark. Yep. Peglodon. 
We're not actually saying she's a giant prehistoric man-eating shark. No. She's just as awesome as one of those would be. If she's an, as awesome as one. And we're not ruling out the idea that she's a giant prehistoric man-eating shark. Would that be the first giant prehistoric man-eating shark to support us? Uh, thinking. Maybe. I mean, your, your brother does support us. <laughs> <laughs> Scanning list. Who can I insult? <laughs> yeah. You beat me to somebody that was... Safe, safe, yeah. <laughs> um, Brandon's brother is not a man-eating shark. Hmm. He only eats women. <laughs> well Please done, Nathan. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll be back. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>